right. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Hope you guys had a wonderful week. I hope your children, if they were out of school, didn't drive you too crazy. I have to do that every week. So let's bow our heads and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness and goodness. Lord, in spite of all the struggles that we go through, in spite of all the sickness that we have to attend and mend to, Father, you are good. And we come to you now asking for you to minister to us as we sit at your feet, that you would comfort, you would counsel, you would warn, and you would give words of wisdom so that we would be enabled and equipped to have our bearing in this world that can be so chaotic and confusing. God, lead us and guide us by the light of your word. And would you bring us such hope and peace so that we do not despair like those who do not know you. God, please bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Hey, come back with me to my childhood just for a brief moment. The year 1985, I'm about seven or eight years of age, and my parents dragged me to church because they have Wednesday evening service. Suyoyebe, as they used to call it, right? But here's the thing. The church that my parents attended was too small, and so they had no programs for youngsters like me and my friends. So what did we do while my parents were worshiping? Simple. We made a ruckus. We were loud. We were crazy. We were running down the hall, screaming at the top of our lungs, hiding in classrooms, scaring each other. This went on for about a good seven to ten minutes when, without warning, the pastor's wife confronted us. And here's the thing that you need to know about this lady. She was one of those old school hummels, which meant she brought fear and dread whenever you were in her presence, even when she wasn't mad. But boy, was she mad at us, evidenced by the fact that she dragged us into this darkened room, like a CIA interrogation room, or so to speak. She made us get on our knees, hold our hands up with no bent elbows, eyes closed, and she started to proceed to ask us questions like, where are you right now? To which we sheepishly replied, we're at church. And then she followed up saying, how are you to behave when you're at church? And to this, we had no clue what she wanted us to say. And so we didn't know what to say. And when it was clear to her that we weren't going to respond, she answered the question for us. You behave at church like you're at church. To which I just looked at my friends and said, what? <laughs> what did she just say? What kind of circular nonsense is that? You behave at church like you're at church. And for years, I thought this lady was just out of her mind. But as I look back now to what she was saying, I realized she was a woman of profound wisdom. Because what she was trying to teach us tonight is what I want to share with you today. And it's basically this. The church is unlike any other place because it's the only place that can make us behave in certain ways that no place can. And so you can't really compare the church to any other place if you want to figure out how you're to behave when you're at church. In other words, the church is able to bring out unique behaviors in out of persons that no other place can, which makes you wonder, how would this world be different if there was no church? Hmm? How would society be if the unique behaviors that only come out from people who are part of the church are not present in society? Would society be better off or would it be worse off? We're beginning today a new sermon series through the book of 1 Timothy that I've entitled The Church According to the Apostle Paul. And the point of this series is to have a proper understanding of how the church is to be and what it is to do so that when we come together to be the church and to do church, we do it in the right fashion. Today we kick off the series by going straight to the middle of this letter of chapter 3 verses 14 to 16 because as we do, Paul is going to show us what makes a church so special, so unique, 
because of the fact that it can elicit certain behaviors that no place can, behaviors that flourish the world. And so with that stage set, I asked Paul the question that was asked of me decades ago. How are you to behave at church, Paul? His response, you behave like the church is family. Yeah. According to the Apostle Paul, the way we behave when we're at church, when we're doing church, when we're being the church, is that we behave like we are family. And from this idea, he's going to extrapolate three behavioral implications that all stem from the idea of the church being our family. Behavior number one, we love the church like we love our family. Behavior number two, we serve the church like we serve the family. And behavior number three, we prioritize the church the way we prioritize family. The way in which we are to be the church as family is that we are to love each other as family, serve each other as family, and prioritize one another as family. Okay? Let's begin with the first point. We are to love the church like we love family. Read again with me verses 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to his disciple Timothy, who is now pastoring the church. Paul started all those years ago in the city of Ephesus. And as I just read, he tells us that the main reason why he's writing this letter to Timmy is so that Timothy would know how he is to instruct the members of the church of how they're to behave when they're in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. In other words, he's saying, Pastor Timmy, I'm about to tell you how your people, the church, are to be when they come together as a community of faith. And according to him, We are to treat each other, we are to behave as a family. Look at that phrase in verse 15, household of God. In the original Greek, it's the word oikos. Yeah, familiar word, right? It's the word that means home, specifically family home. And by employing this word, Paul is trying to say when we come to church, we have to have the same mindset that when we come to our family home. We see each other and treat each other as brothers and sisters, as family. Okay, that is what Paul is saying that we need to do by emphasizing this idea. And as I said a moment ago, three behavioral uh, implications that come out of it. The first of being which that we are to love each other the way we love our families. But what exactly does that mean? Well, let me explain it this way. You guys have heard this phrase before. You can choose your friends. You can't choose your family, right? You guys have heard that phrase before. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. What does that statement mean? Well, one of the things it obviously means is that You can't always choose to love your family. You just have to love your family. It's just the way it is. And that's essentially what Paul is saying to us by conveying this idea. You see, Paul is saying that when Christians love other Christians in the church, it's not because these Christians naturally get along, they naturally gel, they naturally see things eye to eye where they have similar interests, similar struggles, similar concerns, similar values. Right? Because those are the dynamics that we see in friendships. But Paul says that's not the kind of love dynamic we should see in the church. Instead, it should be more akin to a person loving their siblings. You know, those annoying, aggravating, weird siblings that we grew up with. Hey, let me ask those of you who grew up with siblings. How many of you guys would actually be friends with your siblings if you weren't related to them? Hmm? I am willing to bet that perhaps for the majority of us, we would probably not be friends with our brothers and sisters. And yet, I'm also willing to bet that if your sibling was in big trouble, if their kid was deathly ill, you drop everything right here and now and be there by their side. Why? Because that's what families do. 
Families don't operate by this sense of positive emotional connection like you experience in friendship. No, family lives by this idea of dutiful, loyal love where you're by your friend's side. The love that is experienced in a family is more action-oriented where you meet certain needs that members of the family genuinely have. That's what Paul is saying here. And this is something that Christians in our society today, they don't get it. Because so often when they determine what church they want to be a part of, they always use it based on the preferential patterns of friendship, not the dutiful patterns of family. Yeah, Christians who think this way will say something like, hey, if this church has people in it to where I can naturally get along with them, where it takes no effort on my end or their end to connect with me, to to gel with me, then that's a church I can love and be loved on. But Paul says no. That's not the dynamic of love when it comes to the church that he wants his people to live out. He says it's supposed to be one where there is family love, where there is duty, obligation, loyalty, even if you don't feel like loving that way. In fact, it's not just Paul who says this, but Jesus himself. Take a listen to what he says in John 13. A new commandment I, Jesus, give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let me ask you, what kind of relationship do you think people will tend to notice that will tend to stand out in their eyes? Two friends who naturally get along and are close and spend time together or two siblings who don't naturally get along, don't naturally get each other, but they're close and they spend time together. Which of these two relationships are they going to assume took more effort, more sacrifice, more maturity, more grace, more mercy? You get my point? When it comes to the kind of love that should be experienced and exhibited in the family of God, it's not the fickle dynamics of worldly friendship. It is the faithful loyalty of dutiful family love, okay? Now, if you're here today investigating Christianity, you might be thinking, Pastor, why does the God of the Bible, why does he put so much emphasis on this notion of family? What's so special, what's so unique about the family dynamic that he says that should be the paradigm to which his communities of faith, the church, should live by? That's a great question. To answer, let me go to my next point. Serve the church the way you serve family. You guys know they say that you should never do business with family? You know how they say that, right? Never do business with family. Why do they say that? They say that because the service a business provides and the service a family gives are totally, almost contradictory different. Because who do businesses serve? They serve the customer. And who is the customer? Why, the customer is king, which means whatever the customer wants, whatever the customer demands, that's what the customer gets if that business wants to survive, right? But do families give that kind of service to one another in the home? No. Families only serve not based on the whims and wishes of the members, but what the members of that home genuinely needs, right? That's what Scripture says, and this is how our lives are to be lived out. Families serve by things that are by of necessity. And here's the sobering truth. Sometimes you need to serve your families in ways that, you don't, that they don't want to be served by. It's true. Case in point, every now and then, my dear wife, she's not here today, so I think I can say this, although she might be watching from home, so sorry, honey, but sometimes my wife serves me by saying certain words that I don't want to hear from her. Yeah, happens a lot these days, okay? But do I need to hear her words? Should I listen to her counsel? Oh, you bet I should. Why? 
because I need to hear it. And if I reject this service from her, I may start off being happier, but I'll end up being way, way unhappier. Psalm 141 verse 5 puts it this way. Let the godly strike me. It will be a kindness. If they correct me, it is a soothing medicine. Don't let me refuse it. Here's a scenario that I want to paint for you. Let's say you go to work one day, and it's just an off day. You're just not doing well. Something is happening in your life, and it's totally overspilling into your productivity at work. And your boss notices, and he summons you into his office, and he goes, what's going on? Why are you falling short? Why are you not doing well? What is wrong with you? And you proceed to tell him what is going on in your life that's causing you to be so unproductive. Maybe mom's in the hospital and you're worried. Maybe your son's getting bullied at school. Maybe things are off with you and your spouse, right? What is most likely going to be the response of your boss in general? He's going to set aside a full hour where you can sit on his couch and just go off and vent and and tell him what's wrong with you, right? And then what he says afterwards, hey, I'll do all your work for you for today. You just go home. Or is he going to say in the next 10 minutes, dude, I got problems too. So does your coworker. We're here, right? You need to get your act together or you mean to don't show up tomorrow, okay? Hold on to that scenario as I paint for you another. Let's say you wake up one morning and you're deathly ill and you tell your spouse, babe, I'm just so sick. I don't think I can take care of the kids today. What do you think your spouse is most likely going to do in general? threaten to leave you and take the kids because you're sick or to take the day off? Okay, (laughs) let me get some counsel from you guys later. But um, or take the day off and take care of you and the kids. You guys get my point, right? Running a business, raising a family, both require service, no doubt. But these services are categorically different from each other. And yet here's what's so scary. There are many Christians in our society today that don't get this. Because when they think about the church that they want to be a part of, they look at it not from the standpoint of being a member of the family, but being a consumeristic person who sees the church as a business that is to provide goods and services for them. To where they'll say things like, if this church doesn't provide this service, this program, this ministry for me, for my children, I'm out of here. There's plenty of other churches I can check out, right? So many people come to the church with the spirit of consumerism. And Paul says, that's not the mindset you are to have. Instead, Christian, instead, family member, when you come to the church and you determine the kind of service the church gives to you, it should be determined and dictated by what Scripture, the Word of God, says those services should be. Read again what it says in verse 15. Church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Here in this statement, Paul tells us that the church stands on the truth. The truth. And what is the truth? It is the Bible. It is scripture. It is the word of God. Which means we let the Bible determine what our genuine spiritual needs are as well as for our children. Not our consumeristic desires that we bring in to the church. Okay? This is what scripture says, what we are to expect when it comes to the kind of service we give and the service we receive in the church. We receive service like family. Now, some of you guys are going to hear this and you think, well, that's just silly, pastor. Is it? Is it really silly? Well, is it just as silly as to think that businesses out there know what our genuine needs and wants really are? Are you going to actually argue that? Think about some of the commercials and advertisements. Business are always preaching at us, trying to persuade us that their goods and services meets a legitimate need and desire. Their advertising is trying to provoke you to actually believe. 
and ask yourself, have you actually been truly satisfied by the things that they offer? You buy something for a couple months, you're giddy, but then you get bored, you get tired. Ooh, something new, something quicker, something shinier, something bigger, something more portable. I got to have that. You buy it, you get excited, but then a few months go by, ah, uh, doesn't have this, doesn't have that. Oh, but that, that new thing over there. And on and on, this vicious cycle of desiring to being dissatisfied. Desiring again, being dissatisfied again. Does that sound familiar? For some Christians, it does sound familiar because it echoes how they react in trying to find the quote-unquote perfect church, right? They come with the spirit of consumerism where they say, oh, this is a great church. Look at this. It has this. It has that. But then after about a few months, about a year, eh, it doesn't have this. Doesn't, oh, that church over there. Let's go. And on and on it goes. And some of these folks have actually graced our presence by coming through our doors. Some have even had the gall to say to me, you know, Pastor, I've been looking to find the right church for me. And I don't know what's wrong with all these churches. You know, they have this, but they don't have that. They have that, but they don't have this. Can you tell me what's wrong? And I say, sure. You're the one that's wrong. <laughs> these churches are totally fine. The problem is you're looking at it from the wrong perspective. You're coming at it as if you're trying to find something like you're trying to find something at the store. This is not a business. This is the church. This is the family of God. And you need to have this mindset when you come to the church. I have yet to meet a Christian who genuinely committed to the church as a member of the family and suffer anything remotely close to buyer's remorse. The only time I've ever seen Christians who did struggle was when their leadership shifted away from the word of God because they're under the pressure of the membership or maybe the pressure of the culture to shift away the things that determine what kind of service they provide, not based on what scripture says, but what the consumer is demanding, right? But churches that stay faithfully committed to the word, to scripture, members who commit to those churches and have the mindset of family, they are never put to shame. Why does God want the church to function like a family, aside from the fact that it is? Because it sets the proper expectation to the kind of service we should receive and the service we should give. We don't serve each other like we're a business, folks. We serve each other as family because that is what we are. Do you guys get that? If you do, then you're ready to move on to the final point. Prioritize the church the way you prioritize the family. Not too long ago, we celebrated Christmas, we celebrated New Year's, and most likely you made sure to prioritize being with your family during those times because that's what we do, right? Families by nature always prioritize being together in the most meaningful moments and milestones of life. Graduations, anniversaries, birthdays, funerals. Why? Because even though some of your friends could partake in these events with you, Friends come and go. Even though businesses can be a venue to host these events with your family, businesses open, they shut down, but family is always going to be there to celebrate with you in the moments of life where it's called to be celebratory, remember you in moments where you feel like the world has forgotten you, to honor you with their presence faithfully all throughout your life. And because that is so, God says that's the same dynamic that we are to live out as the church. We are to prioritize each other by spending meaningful times together when God says this is a meaningful time. One particular instance is what we're doing right now, Sunday worship. Do you guys know what we're doing here, what this is about? What is this thing? It's a family gathering where our Heavenly Father summoned us to gather around him. 
Why? So that we would know that even though we live in a terrible, dark, crazy world, there's still something to celebrate about. Yeah, God is for us. Even though life can be discouraging, even though life can be debilitating, we can still be honored by the presence of God. Even though this world is always against us, even forgets us, neglects us, we are constantly reminded that our God will remember us and never forget us. He is always by our side. Why do you think God wants you to gather weekly? Is it because he needs an ego trip? Like, oh, you gather around me, I'm a big deal? Or could it be that he knows the kind of world that you live in to where you think there's no reason to celebrate, there's no honor in your life, and there's no purpose to why you should ever be remembered? Wrong. God says, make this a meaningful moment for me by recognizing how meaningful you are to me. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 10. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. All the more as you see the day approaching. God wants his people to prioritize time together. And what saddens me so much is that some Christians in our society today don't do it. The soccer league, the kids' sporting events, Busyness at work or maybe just being bored when you're at church is what debilitates a lot of people to faithfully come to service. And they think, no big deal. But isn't it? What do you think happens to a person when they neglect coming together and they, by that behavior, think there's nothing to celebrate, no one honors me, no one is going to remember me? I don't think you're going to turn out in a good way where you would be a source of good. In this world, we are to prioritize time together because it shapes and forms us in such a way that we're able to be people of hope. Do you see? Now, it's at this point, you might be wondering something. And if I had to put your wonder into words, it would probably go something like this. Pastor, um, by your own admissions, families already do everything that you say, right? Families can be a place where dutiful love is expressed where service to meet needs is done, and where time together is always prioritized. So why do we need the church? Because in the beginning of your sermon, you made the audacious claim that only the church can evoke these kinds of behaviors. But if we're to pattern our community like the family, the family can already do that for us. So what you're saying doesn't really hold water, does it? Yes, it does. Read again what it says in verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on the world, taken up in glory. You see that phrase, mystery of godliness? That's a weird-sounding phrase. What does it mean? Well, basically, it's a phrase that encapsulates a question. How can a person be godly? That's what the phrase mystery of godliness is fundamentally asking. How does a person become godly? a good person, a person of integrity, a person of ethics. Now, here's my question. Why in the world would anyone be remotely interested in asking such a question? Who cares? Why would anyone be caring enough to ask a question, how does a person become godly? I would venture to guess they would ask that question because they have suffered or someone they loved has suffered the consequences of ungodliness in some sort of a relationship, right? And let me ask, in what relational scenario are you more likely to suffer the consequences of ungodliness? Isn't it your family, right? When you say to yourself, what's wrong with that person? What's wrong with him? What's wrong with her? Who are you usually talking about? Is it the coworker? 
Is it the guy who cuts you off? No, it's usually mom, dad, brother, sister, son or daughter. As true as it may be that families could be a place where you could cultivate dutiful love, serving to meet needs, prioritizing time together, it's becoming less and less. Divorce, adultery, affairs, abuse, neglect, desertion, all of that is becoming more and more common amongst families today. And you couple that with the fact that more people are not getting married, more people are choosing not to have kids or can't have kids, and the clear conclusion is Families are no longer a reliable source for the kinds of behaviors that flourish the world, which means we need another institution that can faithfully and reliably provide these life-transforming behaviors. And Paul says it is the only place that can answer the question how a person can be godly, and that's the place of the church. Because what does a church have that no other place does? The church has the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says God loves you. Not because you're lovable, not because you naturally get God, not because you naturally get along with God, not because you naturally gel with God, because the truth is we're the polar opposite of God, right? The way we think and behave. You know, we don't, we don't in any way come close to really connecting with God in any meaningful level, and yet he still loves us. He still chooses to love us with merciful love. And this merciful love compels God to put himself in a situation where he would experience things that are so unnatural to him and even uncomfortable, like coming into the world as a human being, where he would suffer shame, beatenness, violence, humiliation, being spit upon, being beaten, being killed. Why? So that he could meet the greatest need that you need, a need that a lot of people don't even want to acknowledge that they have, their need to be saved from the dominating power of their sins, from the divine punishment of sin. You know how offended people get these days to say they need to be saved? Like, that's not, I don't need to be saved, right? Listen, when Jesus came to earth, he didn't come to satisfy the political desires of Israel for a new king. He didn't come to to just endlessly feed the thousands who just wanted a free meal. He didn't just come to satisfy the disciples' desire to be first in his kingdom. He came for something much greater, something much of a priority, the greatest need of saving people from their sins, which is exactly what he did when he died on the cross as our substitute Savior. So that anyone who repents and puts their faith in Jesus as king, they would be changed and transformed by that. How? By dutifully loving people who don't naturally are easy to love. By serving people based on their needs, not on their wants. By prioritizing time together, even if there might be, quote-unquote, other things to do. Don't you see? The gospel is what causes us to elicit the kinds of behaviors that flourish this world. Not the families, not societies, not work, not even, sadly, amongst your friends. Do you guys see? Here's my question to you, NCF. It's something that I want you to keep thinking about as we go through this series. How do you see this place? Is this a place for you just to hang out with your friends? Is this a place where you just expect religious goods and services to be given to you based on your whims and your wishes? Or do you see it for what God says it is? This is your family. This is the place where you come alongside and we prioritize each other the way God prioritized us even when we wanted nothing to do with him. This is the family of God. 
are you going to finally embrace that and start living it out? And together we exhibit the kinds of behaviors that will cause this world to have hope in God. This is the charge and challenge that I'm always going to bring to the forefront of your mind as we go through this series. And I hope and pray you never forget it. And you ask God to give you more conviction to live out this truth. Let's pray together. Father, as we think about how we have approached church in the past, how we have expected certain things, how we have approached it with a certain mindset, Father, forgive us for the ways in which we have dishonored and desecrated the way in which we see the church. This church, it is not a business where it meets our consumeristic demands. This church is not fundamentally a social club where we just get along and make no intentional effort to be gracious and forgiving and long-suffering. Lord, the church is our family. And God, we pray that as we continue to gather together, that we would always remember that so that not only would we have the proper expectation, but we would experience the blessings and the bliss that comes out of such acceptance that the fruit that comes out of being committed and loyal and devoted to one another as you were to us when we did not deserve it is what shapes us so that we become people who love out of duty, who serve with meet real needs and prioritize time together. Help us to do that now so that we can be a source of good in this world. We ask that you would hear us in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>